This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is a very special person who I've known for a long time. He is the head of innovation at Salida, and he's got a lot of other things uh, that we're going to talk about that he has done and that he will do. Uh, Mr. Sebastian Shell uh, Monte. Hey, Sebastian. Hi, Aaron. It is so great to have you here because you are one of the people that have the mind and the experience and the vision that makes this, this industry interesting. And I want to sort of just like unpack what that is. You understand watches, okay? That's an important part. You know how to work with watches, so you you make things that are amazing. And you also have a vision for things that haven't existed yet. And you need people with all these three things in the watch industry. I guess the first question I want to ask is, tell me a little bit about how Sebastian came to this position where you love watches and you work in the watch industry and you happen to be in a position where you get to make new things. How did that happen? Yes, it's a, a little bit of a long story, but I will try to make it make it shorter. So um, my, my education, I, I'm, I'm a lawyer by trade, so it was quite a long way to be where I am today. Um, fortunately, uh, around um, yeah, a little bit more than 12 years ago, I was offered my first job in the industry. So I basically moved from uh, a law office uh, to being head of innovation at uh, La Jouperet, which was quite a big, big jump or a big, a big change in my career because it had nothing to do with what I was trained for. But of course, my interest in watches uh, is a very, very long, long one. It's the reason also why I managed to make this change happen. It, not, it didn't happen overnight, of course, so, um, but I'm basically self-trained in, in the watchmaking industry. So, um, yeah, it was um, uh, Frédéric Wenger, the owner of La Jouperet, who gave me my, my, my chance to, to, to really fully change my career because I had developed different mechanisms. I had uh, a few patents at my hand. And he saw these, he said, he saw um, commercial potential. So we started on a very small basis by just producing a few movements based on my ideas. And after one or two years, he said, come join my company and become the head of, of innovation. Uh, and it's what I did at the end. And yes, yeah, starting from there, I worked for 10 years at La Joue. We also launched two brands where I was in charge from not only the technical perspective, but also uh, uh, watch designing. And uh, yeah, and now I am at um, Celita, which is a... Even a bigger company than what uh, La Jouy is or used to be, and uh, still is. And now I'm more developing uh, um, uh, more mainstream movements for for a lot of brands. Okay, so I, I want to back up here because that's a very interesting entrance into the industry. You know, it's what we're not hearing is I went to watchmaking school. I did technician work for twenty years. Um, this is a very sideways entrance in the watch industry, which I have as well. Uh, I have a legal background as well. And there are a number of people like us who are not practicing lawyers that are in the watch industry. But what I I also want to point out, which is part of a larger general theme of this entire show, is that the most influential people in this watch industry, and I want your opinion here, Sebastian, don't come in the traditional way. They have some additional element that makes them a bit of a wild card, meaning that when they involve themselves in industry, they are, by definition, a bit disruptive. Do you agree or disagree with the statement? Yeah, I think it's something pretty true to, to it because, honestly, it needs, I think, even much more passion to enter something you have not been trained for 
And as it is a passion and you turn your passion into, into a day job, it's always, I think the motivation is fully different, you know? Um, I mean, people always think, oh yeah, someone came around and offered you a job. It was much more complicated than that because these people had a lot of also money involved. So it's a business, right? And, and of course, if you are coming from another background, you have to prove yourself every day, probably even more because you cannot just say, I, I, I did, I've done all the famous schools. So you have something probably to prove. And as you haven't followed these schools, you also have a much more open mind to what have been what what could be done because you are not trained the same way than others because you learn it by yourself. So you have a lot of advantages. And um, I think my the first advantage is if you move into watchmaking by pure passion, you work just much harder because it's basically not only your job, it's your passion. So for, if talking about myself, it's what I realized when I was a lawyer and I, I, think I still was a lawyer with passion and I, I did a PhD, so I was pretty much involved in, in the topic, but still... I realized that uh, watches were, were much more interesting for me in the sense that I could wake up every morning and be interested. And every night before going to bed, I could still read patterns. And I was never, never fed up with watches. So I also fully understood that I would be better in this job because I had such a passion that working 10, 12 hours or 15 hours a day wouldn't be an issue because I really profoundly loved it. You know. Now, were you a patent attorney? No, no, absolutely not. Okay. No, I wasn't M and A. Okay, so again, I just want to I want to talk about this a little bit because we've glossed over it so quickly. But you said that you had filed some patents. Yes, um, I'm guessing a you were young, b you haven't done a lot of patents uh, before that, and c you had to, you know, have engineering schools to <laughs> invent something skills. I mean, uh, to invent something. Are these things you studied or is this part of your autodidactic character? Because, again, another thing that has a lot of the innovators in the watch industry they have in common is this desire to self-learn, to self-educate, to be curious, to tinker, and to learn a skill that they didn't go to school for. So I'm just sort of – tell the story about how this all came together because most people cannot say – oh, I just made a patent that was good enough that a company I have actually no experience in hired me. I mean, these are things to be proud of, but unpack this a little bit more, you know? Yeah, the thing is, I, I mean, I started as a collector. I said that most people are interested into, into watches. And so I started pretty young, of course, not by buying much things, but reading a lot of books, reading patents, reading and learning a lot about the history. And I think what's very special about watchmaking, it's kind of history repeats a little bit itself meaning uh, we we play on classics. It's like with classic music, you don't add much new instruments or electronics. So you work in a kind of a, like with playing chess, you, 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 you're, you're playing in, in, in a defined field, right? So it's also why a guy like I can be an innovator in the field because basically we, we keep to make it mechanical. You know, I like to make some, some, uh, some, some jokes with my engineer saying, don't innovate too much because you will invent a smartwatch or a quartz driven one. Basically, <laughs> we, have to, we have to keep it mechanical, right? So my invention came quite naturally by studying all, all watches and dreaming basically of a watch or complications or combination of them, which haven't been done yet, right? So basically, I was always a little bit in the perspective of a potential buyer saying they would have been cool you know why do you just have a split with two why not making a uh, triple split why not not trying to integrate the tourbillon this way into a chronograph or you know or and then and then i learned of course to to to, to I, I learned a lot of watchmakers who helped me a lot like uh, also um, 
Risha Harbring from Austria, which really helped me a lot. And we discussed a lot about what was feasible, not feasible. So we also had some patents together where um, I had an idea and he, and he made it technically uh, uh, more refined and feasible. So you always, along the way, you, you, you meet a lot of people uh, who trains you, who share with you. And I was very lucky from a very young age to be in Switzerland, which also allowed me to to basically visit uh, watchmakers, manufacturers, and and also at a time where watchmaking was by far, I'm, I'm 46 now and I started 30 years ago. So at the time, watchmaking was much smaller. You had less these big groups dominating everything. And people were very, very open. I re- remember also having met uh, Mr. Claret, who, I mean, I was obviously not a client uh, or not going to be a client. And he took a whole day to, to show me around, to, to invite me for lunch. And what I want to say is, yeah, along the way, I could could, could tell hundreds of names of people who explained stuff to me, who, who gave me books, who gave me movements to study. And yeah, so innovation basically comes from what, what I would like to buy um, from f- f- like a new display, a new function, a combination of functions. Or, so it, it, it pretty much comes from what do you like? Uh, it, it, it comes less from the technical perspective of saying, I just want to make things more complicated or adding. It's more, more I have a vision of, of how a dial layout should look like or which kind of combination of, of complication I would like to. And then also looking at how to make it probably more affordable, technically simpler than it used to be. So we innovated a lot, for instance, with Lajou in, in, in tourbillons by, by also bringing prices down, but not in a negative sense, but more in, in, in making it more reliable and easier to produce. And at the end of the day, uh, yeah, you're you're like thirty or forty thousand dollar tourbillons was scandalously low priced at the time. I remember the time, that absolutely, and they were shock resistance. And we did the Angelus with split second tourbillon automatic power reserve indication, which is still today one of the most complicated yeah. chronograph around. And and we were able to afford fully made in Switzerland for for sixty thousand Swiss francs, which is still a huge amount of money. But put into perspective. When you look at what the development costs are and the very low volumes you can basically produce, and you have more than 500 components in it, at the end of the day, you can understand the price. And, um, and, and, and for instance, yeah, this product has a, a few innovations. Uh, uh, we patented at Lajou, put together. We had a huge also development on deadbeat seconds. You have to remember deadbeats. No, you find them almost, I would say, everywhere. But uh, when we started it, uh, it was a common project with, with Richard Harbring. It's uh, yeah, 15 years ago we were when we launched the first deadbeat tourbillon and then st- simple deadbeat watches. We were alone on the market. Nowadays you have uh, you have true beats or deadbeats like almost everywhere. I would say even Le Coult did one, uh, Chacadro did one. You had uh, you had the Grunfeld, of course, uh, with uh, which did a very beautiful one too. There's nothing new here because the deadbeat is a very, very ancient complication because it's, it, it was invented before the chronograph even. So right, it's, right, not right. That, it's not that I invented anything. The thing is we put it back on the map and we find a way to put it into an automatic watch uh, on a very reliable base. And you and, made it uh, much more accessible. I mean, putting things in perspective, you're talking about a split-second chronograph. I mean, a split-second chronograph from Patek Philippe is hundreds of thousands. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like... Not nowhere. It's no. It's nowhere close. It's nowhere close. Now you were given sort of the reins over at Le Jupere. After a short period of time, you were given a lot of responsibility. How important was it that you were sort of Swiss and already part of that world? Because there's a lot of people that have all these amazing ideas about watches. As you know, 
But very few people, of course, have the access and get invited in. From a cultural and as a uh, proximity perspective, how important was it for your journey that you were you were right there in Switzerland? I think Switzerland is very interesting in the sense that the um, I mean the nationality doesn't play any role. I would say we're very open, and and if you look, uh, Celita belongs to Mr. Garcia, who comes. He's Swiss, obviously now, but he comes from Spain. But but of, of what what made made a huge difference is exactly what you say is being at the right place, basically at the right moment, and being at the right place being being in Switzerland. I could have been, you know, Italian or French. Uh, it's the fact that uh, I was in Switzerland, surrounded by people with an amazing know-how and also uh, always ready to share. So, of course, it's much more difficult if you're in a country which has no wash culture, right? Because here, you, you basically you are you 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 you, you are in 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 the watchmaking. Uh, you you live basically in the watchmaking industry physically because there are watches. Uh, watch companies all around you. So if you are open to discuss or open to, to, to discover and, and to share, I mean, people are, are just physically pretty close. Uh, you, you need, you, I was living in Lausanne at the time. I mean, La Vallée de Joux was 40 minutes by car. So n- not inaccessible. But of course, if you live in, on another continent, you don't have so many people. So obviously being in Switzerland makes a huge difference. Um, a huge, because... Again, you have so many people around who work in the industry or know about it and and restore watches and and and, and from all these different trades you learn a lot because a watch restorer will train you to a lot of different things than someone who works only and solely in the industry. You have a lot of opinions, of course, about the watch industry from the perspective of it making watches and things like that. But in the time I've known you known you, you've always been very diplomatic when it comes to uh, business side. Um, and you've been involved in a lot of, you know, serious business things. Um, for example, Le Pere, that was purchased by the, the Citizen Group yeah. while you were there. And that was um, an interesting t- time, probably very exciting for you. You, you. you probably made out pretty well there. You've seen how a number of companies are run, especially at Salida with all this access and things like that. You know, you began as an activist in terms of how watches were made and what was made is there any part of you now which is becoming an activist for the industry? I mean, as you can see through my career, what's what's a lot of people were a little bit amazed about or amazed is that I never worked basically only or solely for a brand, but always for movement manufactured. And what I really loved, uh, it's also what I saw was a great idea of uh, citizen buying La Joux at the time, is that I, I, I like to work for companies which provide to a lot of other brands because Basically, uh, every day you speak with so many different people and so many brands, you can realize much more ideas at the end of the day because you provide ideas or movements uh, and, and participate in so many projects. So uh, this is something which I really enjoy and enjoy even more at, at, at Celita because Celita, as you know, has much more clients even at La Joux as we have an, an enterprise point, which is uh, much lower. So we really uh, work with the biggest uh, player in the industry, as well as with Kickstarter brands and smaller ones. So uh, it makes you, your everyday job very interesting because you, you participate in, in, in very niche projects and, on the, and in the afternoon you discuss something which will be produced maybe 20, 30 or 100,000 times. So I don't know if it really answers your question, but... Um, no, it does. It does. You have, to, you have to understand Swiss culture to understand how you answer my question, but I, I heard the answer. <laughs> <laughs> a number of years ago, I think it was <clears throat> maybe more than five years ago now, I wrote this article where I theorized that 
the number of watch brands to try to make their own movements had such a detrimental effect to the industry that it, it caused an enormous amount of problems. I basically said how the, how the push for in-house movements ruined the, the modern watch industry. And I talked about how when Swatch Group's EDA told the industry, hey, everyone, we're going to stop supplying you with as many movements, go out and invest in your own you know, manufacturing infrastructure, um, that was actually partially the birth of Solita and some other companies like it. And <clears throat> many companies had to build their own factories. And it forced them to have a cost basis, which was so much higher, the cost of having a manufacturer, all the extra employees, and then the extra cost of manufacturing made retail prices, you know, jump through the roof. And what I basically said is that the consumer doesn't want this. The consumer doesn't really need all these companies all making their own movements. It doesn't make sense. What you need to have is a couple of companies like Etta that maybe don't make the same product for everyone, but make a few, you know, different types of products. Salita does a lot of that. Would you would you agree with the assessment from that article and that the answer in a lot of ways is having a couple of strong Salitas that work for a number of brands and give them distinctive or custom things when they need. Oh yeah, I think it's uh, it's one of the biggest truths of the industry, and I think most uh, of the brands realize nowadays that it's the way to go. And I see it here at Salita. So uh, when you look back also at the history of of watchmaking. Um, and I just want to talk a little bit about chronographs because it's something I wrote a book about and it's something I know pretty well. If you look, all the big three players, uh, which were Valjoux, Venus, um, and Londoran, they all belong to Trust Ebauche. What I want to say is for the for, for last hundred years, or not, not exactly, but let, let's say 80 years, the, the whole chronograph industry in Switzerland, except from a few manufacturers like maybe Excelsior Park, Minerva, and Angelus, they all the big were all buying their movement from the same suppliers. I mean, so it might it be Rolex, might it be uh, at the time Hoyer, which became later on Tag Hoyer or Breitling. They all were buying from Trust de Bosch, and uh, and Omega uh, bought Lemania to have access to movement. What I want to say is, if you look through history, uh, we always had big big movement producer and uh, doing sometimes special uh, stuff, sometimes not just general. For the industry and having all the your own manufacturer in your basement doesn't make any any sense. It doesn't make any sense nor technically because obviously you are not as good if you are not producing a few millions a year. And also economically, of course, your movements uh, are not only not probably not as reliable because you produce less and you have less know-how, but of course they're much more expensive. So I, I think it was interesting for the collectors for for a certain time to have so many novelties coming out. But on the longer perspective, also for the buyers, uh, it's totally what you say. It's not good for the industry. So I think we have to find, and I think the industry right now is finding a balance between uh, something of your own, but doesn't mean manufacture. It means you do something specific, but you work with specialists because the specialist has the general volume. So you can uh, ensure also probably a greater quality and also a much lower price. And you don't, and, and for the end consumer, you have the advantage of having something reliable, serviceable, or um, because also service is something I think very interesting to discuss about maybe later on. Like an ETA movement could be served everywhere in the world, and Celita exactly the same. Any watchmaker in the world can register on the Celita and ask for, for parts. We, we sell parts to any watchmaker, whoever he is in the world, meaning that if you have a watch equipped with a Celita movement or an ETA in the past, you could service it everywhere which was much more uh, economically uh, interesting for the owner. 
and also technically much better because you don't have to send back a watch to Switzerland or to specific workshops. But to come back to the advantages of um, of having uh, big manufacturers, as you said, first of all, through the years, when you look in history, it has always been the winning model. And only when you are too much money in this industry, everybody was doing its own movement. It happens also in the 50s. It happened at different times. And all these people closed down the factory once the industry wasn't doing as well as it used to. And as you know, um, and one of the big problems of the industry, it's very cyclical. So you have some crazy moments and some very sharp downturns. And this is the most difficult thing to handle uh, for the industry in general is that you have some some super hypes and some really lows and 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 of course when everything goes up and you think that the sky is the limit you try to produce your own movement because you might think you are big enough and when the next turn uh, downturn comes you realize that at the end you're not big enough and you go back to traditional movements now the car industry has done a very good job at making consumers feel as though they're getting something uh, custom for the car when a lot of cars are use a lot of stock parts. Um, mm-hmm. You know, engine makers, uh, there's a couple of key ones out there. There's not that many. Uh, but companies that make cars, they call it them their own their own engines. And consumers don't seem to mind. There's no problem. It's distinctive enough. There's no... There's no issue in the car industry where someone's like, oh, I don't want to buy that car because so-and-so makes the engine. But in the watch industry, something which where the engine matters a whole lot less, people seem to care a whole lot more. Why do you think that is that in this space? And I've always wondered myself because I'm not sure. I'm sometimes guilty of it, but not that often. Why are people so obsessed with this idea that the name on the dial has to be the company that made the movement? You know what I mean? So yeah, that's, that's, I think because, first of all, a lot of brands who had the only advantage of being manufacturer but still being small producer, they, try, they really started advertising up, around the movement. I mean, when you look at people like Rolex for a long, long time, it was never a topic. You know, a Rolex, it was always a good movement, but Rolex didn't discuss it. It didn't show it, right? But you had some smaller manufacturer, uh, which at the time were maybe smaller, like maybe uh, Jäger LeCoult or Zenit, who really started talking about because it was their key advantage against bigger brands. They had their own movements. But when you look back in the 80s and 90s, the movement wasn't very important to people. I mean, but the brands who had their own, for historical reason, tried to promote it. And of course, for some watchmakers, they feel uncomfortable saying, I'm a watchmaker and I don't do the core of it. But at the end of the day, a watch is is a design, is a design piece. And a good-looking watch um, doesn't depend on the movement. It depends on a lot of other factors. So here, here's the challenge. Here's the challenge that we have. You and I know that the watch industry is in a better position when a couple of small companies produce the movements for everyone. Not one company, not one ETA, but you know, a dozen or less companies, a uh, dozen Solidas, if you will, uh, make all the movements. Consumers, however, as we discussed, are not entirely comfortable with this. The question is this, how do we do the right marketing spin? What terminology or logical spin do we use to make it clear to people that these are the movements they want? Because you're right, they they're, they're, they're tend to be better made and more reliable. They may not always be as pretty looking, but they can be. It's just more effort needs to put into them. They can be serviced by more people, more parts of the world. How do we create a compelling argument that you want a movement by a third-party company as opposed to one uh, that's in-house made? You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, it's a very. Let me just come back to one very interesting uh, contradiction in the market is 
when you look at vintage, which is a market I know pretty well because I'm a collector myself, people don't care basically where the movement comes from. Uh, go and explain to someone who wants to spend a million dollars on a Daytona for a new man, tell him there's a value inside and he shouldn't buy it. He will laugh at you and still will buy it. Go to any Hoya collector and tell them it's not interesting because you have, an Hoya, you have a, a value uh, movement inside. Uh, I mean, they will answer you, yeah, like in a Daytona, and, and they will still buy the Otavia or the Carrera. What I want to say is that that's a very interesting thing is in, in the vintage market, the provenance of the movement doesn't play any role. They just focus on, 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 on design and, and historical importance. That's interesting, right? That people, you know, it, it, I, I agree with you, but I actually think that I have an answer for it. It's because there's two different types of buyers. People that buy modern watches today are more like the gearheads, the horologers, if you will, people that care about the mechanisms. People that are buying things from yesterday either are either buying historical objects or they feel like they're buying financial assets. The 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 status of the thing is way more important than how it's how it's made. So I think that what you're seeing is two different buyers that are both buying watches and both spending a lot of money, but are are at the end of the day two different buyer demographics. Yeah, probably this might explain the thing, but uh, but again, today I think a Patek Philippe buyer is not someone who really cares about what's inside. If you buy a Patek Nautilus for Tiffany, I mean, you you buy pop art, you buy, and is this an investment grade watch for the people? But I think what the movement is inside, do they really care? But uh, to come back probably to probably not, you, probably not. But again, I think that we can say that there are brands that straddle both things. A Rolex is so great because if you ask a nerd like us, we'll be like, yeah, it's really well made. And if you ask any schmuck on the street, they'll be like, that's a luxury watch. Rolex does multiple things correct. Oh, yeah, and, right. and it you know what I mean? Different buyers due to that, yeah. And so Patek Philippe, there are those people that buy it because of the name on the front, and there are those people that got it popular to begin with by appreciating what it looks like on the back. Mm. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, yeah, so what today? I think you did some, you, you answered basically a few other things. First of all, I think um, for the big players, no, also uh, mainstream movement has to be more pretty um, and um, has to have to forget uh, about uh, ETA design from the 70s, which has been um, reigning supreme for, for years on the industry. Uh, I think the problem, what we have maybe, is that the gap between the in-house movement and, 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 and the more standard one has been that the um, a standard movement had really to be very, very cost-effective, meaning really to be maybe a tenth uh, of the price of a manufacturer movement. And that manufacturer movement, um, like it was cherished like one, one child of the brand, so they put all in, uh, accepting even to lose money or to have, to have different margin. And they made it all look beautiful. And, and, and I think the, the, the future of the industry, and you see it with us, but you see it also with the Swatch Group, is to have more and more innovating movements also in the mass market. And I think once you do more modern movements, like we, come, we, will, we will present this year, like with Celita, uh, a, a column wheel uh, flyback chronograph, which a long power reserve of over 60 hours, um, yeah. It's, it, is, it is on par with any manufactured chronograph movement because it's flyback, it's column wheel, it has everything, right? But of course, if you were comparing it to all the ETA products, which were not column wheel, which had smaller, shorter power reserve, of course, even on paper, they looked less sexy, right? 
I think the first step to do is to have more innovative and more good looking, more traditionally looking probably with nice shapes, nice anglage, and, and you know all what makes what makes um, uh, a collector's heart beat faster. Also in in more affordable watches and more affordable movements. So again, you're, you're you're bringing up another important point, and I love t- discussing this because this is an important part of our world, and that is there are those people that buy a watch because the movement is good at what it does. It's well-made, it lasts long, it's efficient, whatever. And there's those people that like something because it's quote-unquote expensive. And you can ha- usually things that are nicely made are expensive, but it doesn't start out as say, okay, guys, what are we going to do? Let's make a really expensive thing because people are into that. They say we want to put a lot of time and effort into something. It's going to cost a lot, and we're hoping there's enough people that can appreciate it. But at the end of the day, just selling it to the people that can appreciate it often, not always, but often gives you a, a nice little niche niche business, but not much more. You have to also get this other classification of buyer who says, wait a minute, when people see this, they know it's expensive. And this goes to what happened with the tourbillon. The tourbillon had this strange side effect of being able to visually communicate, hey, everyone, I'm expensive, yeah. right? Absolutely, yeah. Nobody who was buying it because it was expensive cared anything about gravity or what it was supposed to do. No, but it's fascinating. It... It's fascinating because it's turning around, it's moving, it's something. I mean, it's... Okay, but it's also like the way a bird looks at shiny things. They're captivated, but they might not really know what they're looking at. Probably, so... but it, it, it is captivating. Uh, to be honest, I mean, the tourbillon has a very, very um, uh, long history now, and, and maybe we the industry did much too many of them. But, really... but you could just have a spinning thing on the dial, meaning the lo- by the logic you're going with, and again, it's not a good or bad thing, but by the logic you're going with, if you just had a fun spinning animation or any kind of animation on the dial, as long as it was captivating, it'll sell. I fully agree with you. And to be honest, it's something I'm thinking about almost every night is to find something spinning, easily spinning, which is look good to look at and um, and and could be like like something different from a tourbillon. And honestly, it's not t- as easy to 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 invent something. I think the I think the Fujiante is going to make a comeback. There's a few of these. Not enough people know about them. They're very rare yeah, and I mean, interesting. I mean, uh, Lajou was the first company uh, to make a Fujiante in a wristwatch uh, back in the days. I think they developed it first for Gerard Pergo, but then it ended up also in being used by Panerai and some others. Mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. we are allowed to talk about this over 10 years ago. Um, <laughs> but, but, but honestly, the Foudroyant, which is something I obviously love as I'm a fan of chronographs. So maybe for people who don't understand, don't know what a Foudroyant is, a Foudroyant allows a chronograph to display fraction of a second. So you have a hand moving around and, 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 and being stopped and can show exactly uh, depending on the frequency, eighths of a second, if you have a 28,800, or if you have a five hertz, like a Zenith El Primero, you would display tenths of a second. So, so there's, allows... a, there's a hand that spins very, very fast. It's called a flying hand. Yeah, it, moves it, it turns quickly. basically in one second around the small dial, and wherever it stops on the, on the dial, it shows a, a fraction of, of a second. So it's super nice to see because it really spins. But to be honest, I would say it is at least, if not more complicated to produce than um, a tourbillon. Good. It's got more inherent value then. It's actually hard to do. 
It is hard to do because you need a second barrel, you need an own gear train, and you need to tweak your escapement wheel to have um, to have a system on it allowing the hand to. So it's super complicated to make. It's got to wear out like crazy though. That's something that always worries me is wear and tear because people like having movements that they really never have to service for a long time. Rolex is great about that, but some movements they just seem like there'd be so much wear and tear. Yeah, and the, and, and and as you're right, so the. The foot wire has always been like for me like a grand complication because it was also most of the time associated with a, with a rattrapant, so a, a split second. There is no connection between both. But when people did in a pocket watch decided to make the most complicated chronograph, like Ami Lecoult, for instance, he loved to combine rattrapant split with uh, foot wire. But um, no, but the, the, the foot wire is something super complicated. And do you know also what was one of the problems of the chronograph with foudroyant? As you have a second barrel, um, uh, most of these, uh, the second barrel for the foudroyant had not a power reserve uh, uh, comparable to the mainstream barrel, meaning if you would run your watch all the all time on, 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 on having your, your foudroyant running, right, the, the foudroyant would stop before the watch. So people get confused because they say, why my watch is still running? Why is my food wire not? Yeah, because you only <laughs> have five hours. I mean, I think the only people who solved it properly is a duo meter from Lukult. What I heard of, I'm un- unfortunately, I don't own any, so I could never have it run for over 30 hours. But what I read is that they have barrels which basically allow the food wire to work basically more or less uh, the same time as the base movement. Okay, so let, let's just let's just talk more a little bit about the sort of Fujirante thing. Uh, again, it begins with this idea where we think it's cool, right? Like there's a couple of collectors and somehow we have to explain to other people that it's cool. And and it's it's interesting because you think about the people that had to suffer making the tourbillons that had to explain it's cool. Like they probably never really benefited. Somebody down the line is probably the one that benefited from the popular tourbillon. I'm just imagining the first few people that put it into a watch, n- nobody, nobody gave them any thanks. It never made them rich. Or am I wrong? No, no, I, mean, I think you are, you are right. But I think the, the thing with the tourbillon is there are different things to understand why is the tourbillon have become so common nowadays and why the tourbillon used to be. If you look in pocket watches, for instance, if you have a tourbillon pocket watch, it's worth much, much more than a minute repeater, right? In pocket watches. You can buy pocket watch minute repeater for maybe 5,000 US dollars. Yeah, yeah, they're not you, that you expensive. Never, if, you get, if you find any pocket watch with a tourbillon inside, it's worth at least 10 times what a minute repeater would be worth. Yeah, and the reason yeah. is, at the time, first of all, they did a lot of minute repeaters. Why? Because they, had a, they were technically, they were useful at night. I mean, they had a real function, meaning giving accurate time without electricity, without having to, to, to light up a candle, right? So people kind of could find it useful to have a minute repeater. To know that having a minute repeater is fully not useful anymore, but it used to be very useful. So, but um, the tourbillons in pocket watches were really done only for competition, for trials and everything. So they are extremely rare and they were done by hand. And it's why they were, and so people had in mind that the tourbillon is something extremely expensive. And it used to be because it was done by hand and it was extremely complicated. But when you, 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 you forward and you come to modern days, a minute repeater nowadays is much more expensive because it's much more it uses much more parts which are very hard to manufacture. And when you compare it with a tourbillon, if it's not done by hand, it is very easy. A tourbillon is not many parts at the end of the day. 
You know, and maybe what they did, 10, 15 parts, additional parts. Yeah, it's not, parts. not that many. It's just assembling. No, it takes steady hands. It's assembling. And, but if you are good in manufacturing and then you have super good CNCs, and I'm a big fan of CNCs because why, why doing parts by hand if they work less good as if you done it by machine, right? But, but as long as you don't finish them on a very high level and you find tweaks them that they are really, really precise. Because making a tourbillon which makes tic-tac, it's pretty easy, right? But having a tourbillon which really functions well in all positions, that's really tricky. So as you said before, as it is shiny on the dial, if you have a tourbillon which just makes tic-tac uh, and, 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 and still moving around, uh, for most people it's enough because they have the shiny effect. But if you really want to have all the advantages a tourbillon could potentially bring, and we can discuss if it really brings advantage in, in a wristwatch, right? Because you move the position by yourself all the time. But still, let's say it adds something. To fine tweet it, in, to, uh, to really fine tune it into a wristwatch, it's super demanding. But if you just let this part, if you don't fine tune it and you just accept that the rate is, is, is okay, but without being very special, you can really make a tourbillon very affordable. On the other hand, a minute repeater, you will never, because you have so many parts. It's so complicated to assemble. That's why nowadays a minute repeater, which is not highly in fashion, I think you agree, you don't talk much about minute repeaters. Oh, the brands love to. Hmm? The brands Sorry? love to talk about minute repeaters. Yeah. Can you, which I brand? mean, look, okay, just recently, Patek Philippe had a, a special advanced, you know, they have these advanced research program watches yeah. that come out every couple of years. Their latest one was a minute repeater, and really the idea was a decoupling of the gong system from the case, yeah. and the idea was about a louder sound. Audemars Piguet uh, has made all this uh, super sonary and all these yeah. things. If you look very closely what they're doing, it's very little actual innovation. What I mean by is it sounds fancy, but they're using old techniques. For example... Do you want it to sound better? Hey, just don't make the case water resistant. You know, stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's for sure. For the minute repeater, I'm saying water resistance and platinum are the two main uh, main technical features to kill the good, a good sound uh, because it absorbs. Uh, the. But yeah, and, and I, no, no, but I agree with you. And I was just thinking also Chopin, <laughs> Chopin brought out a quite nice sonry too, which uses a sapphire crystal, you know, to go out with the sound. I think the first who really started uh, in, in this field was Lecoult. Jäger Lecoult did a few years back also with the back crystal where they like welded um, the gong to the crystal. And On the Hybris Mechanica yeah, 11 yeah. or whatever yeah, it was. But, yeah, I know but, what you mean. But what I say, I agree with you. I was probably wrong in saying nobody cares. So you are right. A few big brands. But on the end of the day, when you look at the Patek, they will pay more for a Nautilus in steel. I mean... You can get on the second-hand market a, a minute repeater Patek, I would guess, for less money than a steel Nautilus if it's rare. So it shows that where the market goes. And if you look at a brand like Richard Mille, which is an amazing success and, and, and really, I think, change the industry for, for something better, I mean, they managed to become one of the most well-known brands in the world without doing any minute repeater ever. I mean, when you look at, at what they've done, I mean, from, I don't know of any a perpetual calendar or any minute repeater from, from, from Richamil, which is not a criticism at all because basically it's not fitting their DNA. What I want to say, it's in the, in the previous ancient time, if you were Vacheron, if you were Le Coult, or if you were Patek, you had to make a minute repeater to be part of the Haute Orangerie world. 
Nowadays, even 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 Global Force, they came very very late with their grand sonnerie. Then they came with a huge thing, right? It's like they have to, and they're romantic. But I think that there's so much innovation. Like people, like you mentioned, Christophe Claret has actually tried to innovate, where he used, you know, a hammer and a gong as the sound of an activator, like a, a, a you push a pusher and you activate the chronograph and this, you get like a, you know, just like you, you, he said he was inspired by his phone that when you hit a button, you get feedback. But you know so who started with it? It was Glashütte Original with the Pano Retrograph who had this gong. They were the first. Uh, I don't know which one came first. I think they were both working on similar stuff, but you're right. They came out with the, I think it was the diary one. And, and, is what the, you're and the panel about? retrograph, it really had this bing when you were because it's basically the easiest way to make a watch shine is 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 combining. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but when you go into real repeaters, and I mean Claret, of course, did was one of the very first in the industry to provide in maybe 15 years or 20 years ago, he provided almost everyone with minute repeaters in the industry. Because yeah. before brands started to develop their own. But what I want to say in in uh, in the industry nowadays, I would say the design and uh, and, and, and I mean, having an iconic design like a Royal Oak, like a Nautilus or, or some few others, or, or like a Richard Mille, uh, it's much more important for customers than having a super highly complicated, uh, highly complicated uh, movement. And when I have friends, you know, who, comp- who complain because none of us can have access to a steel Nautilus right now. Uh, I mean, at least I not, even if I know a few people in the industry, it's by far not enough. Uh, uh, people complain, but you could still find amazing Patek Phillips under retail if it's something you are you are you are looking at. Yeah, as long as you don't go in in the mainstream, but you take yeah, if you take complicated Pateks uh, like perpetual calendars from the eighties, you can still find, for my in my opinion, bargains because people don't want gold watches. They don't want on on they don't want. Them well, there's on many bargains. The, the, look, there's so many watches out there that it is literally impossible that there will never be bargains in high-end watches. But honestly, you have, you, I mean, I would still say that it's, it's, it's one of the toughest markets I have experienced. You know, I, I've been collecting for really a few years. I know really people also go and look into, into the niche. You know, I remember days where you could buy like Daniel Roth to the, for the kilo. These, these days are gone. I mean, even, people <laughs> know, even though people are looking at, 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 uh, at, uh, old Frank Miller's going up. I mean, okay. honestly, it's, but listen, hear me out, hear me out. I agree. Mm-hmm. But those days when those incredible deals were available, that also was the signal of some massive industry unhealth. Like you and I know that the fact that we're able to get these watch for such good deals means that something is wrong. Right. So, but, but 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 remember also when you could buy an, any jewel in second hand, and I mean every time you go to an auction and you had a jewel, you could just cry how how cheap or it was going. There'll Maybe. be new jewels. There'll be new the new versions of that, meaning someone else that comes up that isn't known. And at the same time, this is what I, I say to everyone. Right now, if you look at the investing market, things like stocks, you know, basic equities and things like that are not exciting. It's too risky. It's freaky. Um, everything which is like a, a bond or, or something that used to be stable doesn't have any returns. Right now, people don't really like to invest in traditional things. So they've been taking their money and they put it into alternative investments. Art and cars and wine and watches are these things. So what I see is you have this very high level of investor interest in watches 
in a way that wouldn't exist if there was a little bit more activity and trading, you know, traditional stocks and bonds and things like that, which I believe will come back. It inevitably will have to. We are in a chaotic market. And I think by definition, it's going to stabilize. And when it stabilizes those more stable things, especially now that interest rates are going up soon. So what I see in the next several years is a lot of money is going to get out of watches into other investments, which is going to get rid of a lot of the competitive dollars in here and bring prices back down to what we're used to a little bit. Maybe not as much extra inventory and unsold merchandise as before, but the the investors who are literally looking to make money, a lot of them will walk away in the next five years. Yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely I couldn't agree more than with you than what you said. It's exactly what I think. And because a lot of people have moved into watches, like they have maybe moved in, in other strange assets, uh, uh, talking about Bitcoins and so on. Uh, but I, I honestly, I believe in watches and I don't believe in Bitcoin on the long term. But uh, in the sense that watches, you still have some kind of rest value in it. But of course, people were looking to invest. And as you are fully right, if interest rates start again, I think watches will not... I mean, most of these people didn't buy by passion or interest in too much making because, as you said, they were trying to buy wine, art, and having real assets. And real assets is never bad if you have inflation, right? It's always better to have something physical, some gold, some diamonds. It's always better probably than cash, which can, like, especially if you have very strong inflation. Um, but um, so, yeah, probably you are, you are right. I think the market will probably go back, uh, hopefully, to something on a more normal uh, normal um, normal levels because what we are seeing right now is just just crazy, um, especially also regarding brands like AP and which hasn't been in fashion for years. I mean, I'm not talking about the Royal Oak, right? But I re- still remember when you could buy any perpetual calendar here in Switzerland on the on the second on the grey market, a second hand market. I would not not grey second hand market for for six or eight thousand Swiss francs, uh, gold, gold, uh, solid gold, perpetual calendar made by Audemars Piguet. And Audemars Piguet is, is really something. It's really household name. It's high quality, it's high tradition in family hands. So it was ridiculous. But what I want to say before, it's finding value is very difficult because I have known also all the hype around Daytonas, Rolexes, all, it was always cyclical. So, but all watches at the same time be as high as they are knows, it's something I have never experienced before. But I want to say that on the same hand, you cannot find a Daniel Roth or, or, or a good Genta, and you could not find any AP or any Rolex. I mean, I have really known waiting lists for Rolexes for for like we'll say like for the Sub or for for the Daytona. Even when I was when I was young, it was it wasn't easy to get a Daytona. Then you had a few years where it was more relaxed. You could find some. But I have never, ever experienced that you cannot find any single steel oyster in a, in a shop. That's ridiculous. Before we go any further, a quick announcement. And we thought we would tell you, the listeners of the podcast, all about it first. A blog to watch is hiring. We are looking for a social media manager to look after all the Instagram, Facebook, comment section, the website, all the social media stuff that you can think of. So if you're interested... Get your CV together and any relevant experience and email the boss man himself, Ariel, at ablogtowatch.com. We really look forward to hearing from you. So with that done, back to the show. Let me let me also tell you something which is going on. And again, I agree it's ridiculous, and I hear about this pain from a lot of people. So you're you're not alone, Sebastian. You're not alone. No, no, it's not that I'm. I mean, I have enough watches to survive. No, we can we can never have enough watches. Don't ever say that. (laughs) (laughs) But, But. No, no, but hear hear me out. The pre-owned dealers out there 
are right now engaging in hoarding behavior, whereas anything they think will ever become popular, they are buying up. Okay? So what you're having is a consolidation of lots and lots of pre-owned inventory into a small number of hands around the world. Each of them have hundreds of millions of dollars of inventory. And they're going to be sitting on it for not a long period of time, but certain period of time. Now, as you know, when you're in investing, the most dangerous thing is to have unsold inventory, okay? And we're going to get to the point where there's going to be a couple of companies with hundreds of millions of theoretical dollars and watches that they're sitting on. Now, they're buying it all up because they know that in sort of an open market, there's not enough demand because it takes nerds like us to find the stuff. But they feel if they can trickle it out around sort of a hype machine that they can sort of sell them slowly over time at a price they'll be happy with. Now, this is their hope, okay? I don't think they're all going to get away with it. It's very hard to maintain hype. For all of them to do at the same time, for them not to get impatient about the hundreds or thousands and thousands of watches that they have that are unsold, I think that at some point, one or more of these companies is going to offload their watches in a big way. And that is going to do very interesting things to the prices because they're going to be unloading huge volumes at you know liquidation prices. That's going to happen, in my opinion, again, the next five to 10 years. Yeah, I think you might be right. At least we have seen some smaller brands where we really see market making from some dealers in the sense of, keeping prices high and, and buying whatever they can from some given brand. I have seen it here also. I think Rolex is probably different because the hype is general. And, and uh, uh, But for smaller players or smaller brands, which have gone crazy in price over the last 24 months, there's something weird because I don't think that collectors just discovered by accident. And I agree with you. Everybody is looking for the next trend and tries to store and buy and saying the next thing will be because there's nothing else to buy. And, and it's what really what you see where people where they cannot get uh, they cannot get the Nautilus they cannot get I mean even even Vacheron when he's selling the overseas I mean this means something it's a perfect watch huh, by the way and quality and the quality is nothing to say about but for years it was really not an easy watch to sell at least not in Europe uh, I don't know what you think about this specific model but it, I mean <laughs> they, 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 I mean they redesign it every eighteen months. They redone. I mean, and, and I really, it's a watch I personally pretty much like, but it was never very high in demand. Look and, again, you have to stop pretending like it's watch lovers out there. Okay, mm-hmm. we live in a world right now where, socially speaking, it's very important to a lot of people to show off that they are doing okay and they've made it. We see this happen when there's a massive stratification between the haves and have-nots. When there's more middle class, it becomes very impolite to show off wealth. But when you have these big differences between uh, those that have money and those that don't, socially it becomes important uh, in a way that is, is, is very different. And so there's a lot of people out there that are buying these objects specifically to tell messages about the amount of money they have. It's got nothing to do with appreciating it, it looking nice, anything like that. It's having a black Amex on your wrist. Yes, yes. So this is a very nice little side effect. But again, people like you and me, if we just wanted to say that, we just carry around a bag of diamonds or or something like that, right? Mm. We do this for a slightly different reason. And I think that 
we fundamentally have a little bit less in common with the sort of status seekers because for us, this is an intellectual pursuit. We're not trying to broadcast this to everyone. We're trying to broadcast this to a narrower group of people. So we're both still consumers. We're both buying watches. It both feeds the same industry. But I need to spend more time with people that are the enthusiasts like me. Otherwise, this hobby isn't really fun because you're just a status seeker. It could be anything. It doesn't even matter that it's watches. And I don't want to talk about movements or Fujiantes. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm fully with you. And, and when you look at the industry right now, everybody might think it looks shiny. And it's in fact not because one of our biggest problems in the industry right now is that the big, the volume are just going down, going down, going down, every month going down, going down. So the value goes up because we sell much more high-end watches to very high prices. But when you look what makes, I mean, the industry stable over time is big volumes, right? And and the, and the figures are, are are really really bad. I mean, um, I mean we have a decline which which is which is unprecedented in in, in volumes, and um, and I mean the Swatch Group pretty much always is also why the stock of of uh, the stock price of of uh, Swatch is probably so low. But talk because- about that. Talk about the volume reduction. Explain what that is. I I, I think no, not not enough people are talking about. It. Explain um, that issue. It's, it's the biggest issue I think for the last I would say six to eight years of the industry is basically that that probably um, the connected watch hurts much more than what we it was supposed to, and in fact that expensive watches uh, the demand is increasing. So I mean the export the in, in value are, are, are rising. But in in number of pieces, they are really decreasing massively and on on a very, very unhealthy level. Meaning, how can I translate it? It's it's pretty much that, that, um, um, how can I say? Um, The interest in watches or in mechanical or Swiss-made watches in general, but let's say mechanical watches, is decreasing, is decreasing, uh, but it is increasing in status symbol investment watches. It's why uh, brands up, uh, up with an export price of 3,000 Swiss francs are doing very, very well. And all the watches below are very, very are suffering a lot. And, 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 and really, the industry loses huge volumes. Yeah, so meaning that the interest for might for a watch between 1,000 and 3,000 or 4,000 dollars is massively decreasing, while watches for, let's say, 10,000 or even 100,000 dollars I, I would say it are increasing, but of course, but lower it's... volumes overall. Okay, so let's let's talk about that. That means that the industry requires less watches to be made, less movements, less yes. money for suppliers, yes, uh, less money to employees. Um, you know, this has always been an industry that has thrived around volume. Any manufacturing industry wants to make a lot more of the things they already make. They don't necessarily want to diversify. Their dream is make more of what we already know how to make, just increase volume. This is the dream. This is how you get economy of scale. Blah, it is blah, how blah, you blah, blah. It's also how you make money at the end of the day. Yeah. That's where the profit margin comes from. Yes, mm-hmm. of course. So the industry has a vested interest in making the reverso an icon so it can make you know a whole lot of reversos for years. And, and make money, and that was the that was the Richemont dream, you know. For example, not always clear how it how it worked out, but that's the dream. So what Sebastian is saying is that high end watches might be doing well as status symbols because in pop culture, um, it's very very popular to talk about watches as, as status symbols, and that's fantastic. But 
when it comes to uh, maybe middle income luxury watches and things like that, um, there's an enormous reduction in volume, which in some ways is positive because there was an overproduction, right? There was more watches than the market was able to absorb, but but the the number keeps going down and down and down, and no one knows how small it can get, and it's already too low to support the manufacturing base that exists right now. And it's not a quote unquote pandemic problem. It's going to last longer than that. Would you sort of agree that I'm 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 adding relevant um, uh, details? Yeah, it's exactly what you what you say. And but maybe people have to understand that even the high end they need suppliers because not nobody in the industry produces all by themselves, and these suppliers. May, who make turning parts or making bridges and so on and work for a lot of companies, they need the volume to make also the high-end watches because the high-end watches alone cannot sustain the industry. The industry needs volumes. Like basically, if yeah, you, it's a pyramid. You, you, you need the base to, to, to make uh, the top happen. You cannot have just uh, the top of the pyramid and not the rest of it. And, um, and that's something which is scary because it pretty much shows that uh, there is a, a, um, a decrease in interest in all being mechanical or Swiss-made. And probably people spending money on different things and having other priorities than buying a Swiss-made watch. Now, I, I agree that that's the perception in Switzerland, but I'm going to tell you, coming from the, from the other side, outside the market, I have a different assessment of what the issue is. And I have talked about this a lot. I firmly believe that it's a, it's a, it's a failure of marketing. Now the entire distribution side of the industry did collapse. So the historic way where people knew about watches and retailers knew how to get people into their store, that model has ended. So there's sort of a new paradigm of marketing that the watch industry hasn't really wrapped its mind around, but you know, all the brands that are popular now are popular as a function of marketing. They have, they have they have nothing to do with people appreciating fine mechanical things. Rolex doesn't do well because of people appreciating fine mechanical things. It does well because of its its excellent marketing. So I, I feel that the the mainstream part of the industry can be saved, but there does need to be a shift in the cost structure where large amounts of advertising spending are part of the process. And it's probably best that that doesn't come out of Switzerland, you know, maybe a different place where they do that better. Switzerland does great at making watches. U.S. is good at communication. It, it needs to be more of a team effort. But if you've seen how popular the watch has been able to be and how well it's been able to endure, I think you'll agree that with the right consumer education and marketing, it has a much better chance of growing in volume. I, I, I mean, basically, I hope so because I'm working in this industry. But on the other hand, when I see all people running around with, uh, with an Apple Watch on their wrist, I can understand that you don't have maybe you don't have... Uh, so you don't have the space to or to wear two watches, or you don't want to have a, a watch on every wrist. So let's talk about that. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about that. Okay. So you're so you're again. This is inter- important because it's sort of like point counterpoint. Your argument, again, very, very important point, is that it doesn't matter how much people like watches. Um, it's going to be difficult for a toy to compete with a tool. And if the smartwatch is something that has a bunch of functionality you need, health-related things, activity tracking, um, a lot of me- yeah. payment, all kinds of stuff that you once you start having it, it's going to be like your phone. It's like, you want to give it up? You could, but it's really convenient now that you have it, right? And so you're saying that because it occupies the same space on the wrist, people will choose the smartwatch over uh, the, the mechanical watch. And, and yes, in a large way, that's true. But here's what I found. And, and I, have, I found a lot of evidence to suggest this. Once people wear something on the wrist all the time, they feel naked without it. 
right? So as you know, when, you wear, when you're a watch person, you don't have one on, you feel naked. And second, people get tired of wearing the smartwatch all the time. It doesn't tell you anything about personality. Um, and once in a while, you want to wear something else. It's sort of like sneakers, right? If, if sneakers were as good as, it, or as good as they are, people would wear them all the time everywhere. But there's a lot of times where sweet sneakers are just too generic, too casual. They don't make a statement about yourself. So my point is that similar to you know wearing sneakers all the time, if the smartwatch is your sneakers, you're going to want to take it off once in a while for something more formal. So 10 to 20% of people's time, leisure time, social time, relaxation time, they're going to want to take their smartwatch off and they're going to want to put on an alternative because if they don't, their wrist is going to feel naked. So I think that there's going to be, like I said, this 10 to 20% of wrist time, which is going to be available to something other than a smartwatch. And the fact that everyone has smartwatches means that when you don't wear one, people are going to spend extra time paying attention to the fact that you don't. So the visibility that watches are going to get is going up a lot. So all in all, I think that mechanical watches can live in harmony to agree with smartwatches because while there's some negative, there's also a lot of pluses. I mean, um, that sounds pretty promising. I, I hope you are. I mean, I, I strongly hope that you are right. Huh? Um, I really, I really see this. Yeah, for me, it. I mean, as an alternative, and that you don't wear your smartwatch all the time, make kind of sense. Uh, so it might be logical. Uh, I mean, at least it, it gives us a little, little bit of hope. <laughs> But I really see the, the real estate on the wrist as as an issue. Uh, especially for people who want to monitor themselves 24 hours a day. Um, and, you know, when, when it came out, um, the Apple Watch especially, I was, I was wrong. I, I basically saw it wouldn't be such a success because I said, even in the, in the, in the, in the high, high days of, of Swatch, uh, I mean, not the group, but the watch itself, they had to make, I don't know how many versions a year, but let's say a few hundred, you know, to keep, the interest in people and, and everybody right. wanted to express a personality by having a colorful or a banker would maybe have a gray and black version. And you needed a lot, you know, to satisfy women, men, kids, uh, teenagers. So when you were entering a, a, a boutique uh, of Swatch, you really had for any, every taste and they needed to make so many designs in order to keep the volume up at the time. We're not talking about the very low volumes that produce today. Uh, but at the time, even at the time when it was super hype in, to have it, it was the most affordable watch in Switzerland, so to speak. You, you had no connected watches and, and still they needed to make. And when Apple came out, I thought, who wants to have this black thing square on your wrist and look like everybody? Of course, of course you could, you could find a different st strap. You could express your personality through maybe a little bit of a colorful strap, but still. For the, for the mobile phone, I could understand because it disappears in your pocket and and you don't see it as something where you want to show people who you are. I mean, you, 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 and your phone is just your phone, right? And and they really manage, and, and I admire Apple for that, but as you write, probably with much better marketing than what a Swiss company ever will be able to make, which is a big, big problem and, and probably one of an essential point, maybe to discuss even a little bit further, Uh, uh, they managed to convince people that it was okay to 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 run around with a black screen on your wrist, a square. 
right? I, I saw them do it. Yeah, I don't know if you were paying attention, but I was with Apple from the beginning. I saw every step they did from the moment they released the thing, all the different types of fashion campaigns they did, all the marketing campaigns, all the lifestyle campaigns. I saw them step by step make the watch cool with multiple demographics. They had a whole strategy. It was super clear how they did it. It was effective because they just put the resource behind it and they had a strategy. And I had never seen anyone in the watch industry do anything close. And it was so, I mean, you could deconstruct it by looking at the site. No one's even talked about it. You know what I mean? And it's, it was such a brilliant move. And like you said, in a relatively short period of time, they completely took over the market and they didn't do it by accident. And I knew from the beginning how successful they would be. And I was made fun of, and I would go to the, the manufacturers and I would, you know, they would be like, oh, you're a trader writing about the Apple watch. I'm like, just you guys wait, just you wait and see what'll happen. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, Apple is Apple, and you are right. They did it in, 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 but it's it's amazing. But it shows how strong Apple is at the end of the day that you can push into the market a non-obviously looking device. I mean, we could discuss about the beauty of of different Apple products, but I think most of us will agree that the design is on a very high high level. Uh, but uh, talking about the Apple Watch, it is fascinating. I mean, remember, Aria, when we were kids and someone would have told us that we could have one day such a watch. Imagine. I mean, I was, as a kid, amazed I'd be so by excited. Small, you know, <laughs> by battery-driven television you could take with you at school. For me, it, yeah, was like, yeah. it was like landing on the moon, right? So if someone would have told me that I could have a, a watch with, with a TV on my screen, which could monitor my, well, not that I'm particularly fond of monitoring myself, but but still, I mean, all the features you have in. But For me, it would have been the maps and the GPS and the sensors and the compass and the altimeter. I would have thought that's the coolest thing in the world. Yeah, all because it's not like, like, like really like, like being James Bond, right? You had like, yeah, yeah. like delivered by Q. The thing is, what has really amazed me, and it, at the end, when you see it, especially uh, by women, it's not a piece of beauty. It's not. You can turn it whatever you want. You can say square is nice. It reminds you a little bit of IKEPod. Whatever you want to say about it, it's not good looking. In my in my view, honestly, I see it to be wrong because it's not. Million. It's not. It's never supposed to be good looking. It's supposed to blend in. Apple strategies. People don't realize they're not trying to be pretty. They're trying to make things that do not look like you're wearing a piece of electronics. This is the goal. Because it all started with Steve Jobs looking at all the other electronics makers out there and being like, you guys all look like nerds that don't want to go on dates, okay? So Apple was the electronics for someone that still wanted to go on dates. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm being sort of overbroad here, but the idea is that it's supposed to not look like you're wearing a gadget. It's supposed to just sort of blend in, look neutral, add to who you are. Um, you know, you're talking about a, a style from a Silicon Valley where people don't even want to wear labels and logos and things like that. Everything is supposed to be like just about colors and shapes. And they've done that well. They make it look like you're just carrying a shape with you and not a piece of electronics. So in that regard, they're focusing on other parts of what you do showing the beauty, maybe jewelry, maybe your car, maybe your shoes. Uh, Apple isn't trying to make a statement. And that's why like you know, the tag where connected is going to beat the Apple Watch any day in an aesthetics contest. So you think it's like like something wearing something neutral, basically? Yes. So you don't get judged about it, neither negative nor positive. You just you just, you just look like you're up to date and you, you're able to buy the latest stuff and you're you're fitting in and you're just you're you're, you're keeping up with the Joneses. 
That's what it is. You're keeping up with the Joneses. And again, it's a powerful emotion. I'm not, I'm not trying to denigrate it at all, but it's very different than, hey, you got the latest cool gadget that does all these things. Most people couldn't tell you the first three things to do with their Apple Watch. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm, I think you're absolutely right. But I mean, the industry, um, you know, also the big advantage of Apple, uh, first of all, that like every newcomer, they define the business. They did it. I mean, it's how they killed Nokia because they redefined what a mobile phone should be. They basically at least hurt pretty pretty badly the industry, the Swiss industry, by defining what what should be. And of course, for industry as Switzerland, it's very difficult to 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 give any reply to it because, I mean, the Apple Watch is 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 everything but a watch. At the end of the day, it's it's a personal computer on the wrist or however you want to call it. But you agree with me? An Apple Watch does so much more than giving time. That at the end of the day, giving time or telling time, I mean isn't by far the biggest uh, device, the biggest uh, um, uh, quality of it, right? Yeah, but that's an old argument at this point. I mean, look, here's the funny thing about a watch. We don't buy it because we need to tell the time, but if it doesn't tell the time well, we don't want to wear it. (laughs) That's good, yeah. I agree with you. Okay, so it's still an important thing, and what I've been doing a lot is wearing both. I have no problem wearing an Apple Watch on one wrist and traditional watch on another. I do it all the time. I know it's not for everyone, but at the same time... It's a little bit geeky, right? You know, here's the thing. It's only geeky when you're the only person doing it, but I got to admit, Sebastian, I've been seeing more and more men double-wristing it, so to say. Okay. I see it a lot, and I, you know, you see a lot. I see like uh, sometimes in LA, for example, it'll be like an older gentleman who who cares about his health, but he's still wearing the Rolex President on the other wrist. Mm. He won't take it off. I see this a lot. These are not watch lovers. These are just regular people that, in their mind, are like, "Oh, I got an extra wrist. I'll just put the Apple Watch there." But it's not a question for them that they'll take off the watch. It means so much to them. It reminds them of the good times. It reminds them of who gave it to them. Watches are still so powerful emotionally. They're, they're not going to lose that. No Apple Watch is going to have that emotional tie. Like it's so, it's too common. You can't yeah, attach. And it's obsolete pretty pretty soon. I mean, I mean, in, in the best. In, I mean, in, if you are lucky, you can maybe wear it five to eight years, but at a certain point, everything is dead, and, and I mean, and you cannot run the last the, la, the last software on it. So you a, cannot- a watch, a mechanical watch, is going to be obsolete as fast as women's bracelets are going to go obsolete. Yeah, but still, I mean, you see that the decline in, in entry-price Swiss-made watches is is huge. Really, it's it's not a slight decline. It's 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 a catastrophe. It is a catastrophe. But I would also argue, and we gotta we gotta we gotta end actually because we've gone over. But I we we gotta have you back on the show. It's going down because of the distribution points. You're talking about a world ten to fifteen years ago that had a lot of department stores or stores that will buy lots of units at a time. Yeah. Okay. Those types of distribution points in most parts of the world are now irrelevant. It's not that smartwatches took them over. It's the fact that coinciding with the popularity of the smartwatch is this rapid change in how people buy products in general. And mm-hmm. watches have not well adapted to that. As, as it is for everything, they're always a decade or two decades behind. Yeah, I agree. It was like a perfect storm, different elements coming together at the um... Look, they they have been told, and again, you'll laugh because you know how rigid they can be. They've been told, okay, you used to sell, just for example, a thousand watches per order to this relatively small number of vendors around the world. 
you have now have to go from selling one watch at a time to a diverse set of consumers that have a diverse set of customer service, shipping, tax needs, as, and they need to be marketed to as well. You have to get them to your website, and then you have to track them for 6 to 12 months and keep harassing them before they finally buy something. Are you prepared to do all that? No. I mean, no, they, they, well, they, they have no yes, idea. Yes. They, they think that after they have a website that can do a transaction, like, oh, we have an e-commerce site. They pat yourselves on the back. We're, we're, we're good, right? This is all we need to do. We built a, an ATM machine for business, right? People just come and push a couple of buttons and it makes us money. Uh, no. So they can't just go back to the department stores because they don't exist in the same way. And no matter how hard they try, they can't sell watches one at a time without a significant investment in the infrastructure to maintain all that. Yeah, I agree with you, yeah. So, of course, only the super high-end watches that are sold to you know uh, elite clients are going to be what's, what's selling right now. That's, still, that's the only relationships with customers they have anymore. Mm. Yeah. They're not. They're, they're trying, and they're trying to do everything um, on on sort of this get rich quick kind of scheme thing. I mean, look, I, I love these people, but the fastest and cheapest way, as you know, of getting a consumer audience is to support media. Media not only reaches consumers, but makes a consumer community. Consumers you can sell to. The the fact that the watch industry has siphoned almost all of its marketing dollars away from media. Um, has made it so that you there's no central way of communicating with anyone, teaching anybody anything. Now you just leave it up to the to the to social media, which is you're a slave to the algorithm. You like that better than than you know having a couple of a block to watches around? But I, I mean, I, I, it's very hard to see what media you're talking about because if you go into traditional media like like newspapers and so, so printed media still in Switzerland, it's 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 still paved by 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 classical advertisement. I mean. You cannot read in Switzerland, at least, uh, I don't know, in the U.S., because I, I read only digital American uh, medias. But when you go here in Switzerland and open any newspaper, any magazine, I mean, you, it's impossible not to find any advertisement of, of one of the big brands. It's still one of the okay. biggest advertisers here in Switzerland. For the digital media, I, I, you know much better than I. For your market, you yes. Hmm? You're reading, you're in the market where the decision makers of the brands are. Okay, they like to see the papers they read full of their ads. Yeah, it's yeah, an ego a, thing to one another. You are right. It's they not like that anywhere else. Maybe in a couple of small markets. Maybe in like London, Shanghai, you might see a lot of. But for the most, LA, no. There's no. There's no watch brand marketing over here. You got like a couple of billboards for like Rolex and. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, their ads aren't very good. But like, if you are not a watch lover in LA already, no, there's nothing the watch industry is doing to make you a watch lover. There's no investment in making new watch lovers. Mm, that's crazy, huh? Yeah, and again, you, you, as smart as you are, and as much as you know, that's impossible for you to see from where you are. And it is no, no. But when I used to travel more before COVID, especially in Asia. For instance, I was always amazed how present, for instance, the Swatch Group was in Asia. Wherever you went, in any in any airport, in any, you had advertisement advertisement for Swatch Group brands in yeah. Asia. No, I'm talking yeah. in Asia. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they were really present. But I, I would still say, uh, yeah, that especially when you travel a bit, also airports and so, I would say the industry is still quite present. The thing is, I think the huge advantage of, of Apple, Apple represents by itself, I mean, more more volume than the Swiss industry, meaning it's, I think, what also the industry would need. And we had it in the past, especially like in the 60s when it 
the chronograph were not selling well, and the whole industry promoted the chronograph together, like not like saying buy a, a Breitling, buy a Hoyer, buy whatsoever. So just to say to people, you need to have a chronograph. You need to time stuff. You need to be a modern. You need to be uh, athletic. So meaning being a modern man means wearing a chronograph. So they decided on a worldwide base to make advertisement for the chronograph itself, meaning promoting a way of life. And, and nowadays, when you look at Apple, also the strength they do have is what the industry probably would need, the Swiss industry, is a collective effort in promoting mechanical or Swiss mail watches, you know, not just promoting brand by brand, but having like a collective effort of what does it mean being Swiss made today? Why is it still relevant? Why does a Swiss made watch in general withstand the test of time for, for decades, you know? And as long as, as the industry is not united anymore, and it is definitely not as it used to be, because no, the, it, everything belongs to big groups and the big groups, they have they are fighting against this. All. So the industry massively changed over the last 50 years, um, meaning I think it would be very difficult nowadays to find general agreement around all the big groups to defend and to what is what it, does it mean to have a Swiss-made watch. And if you would ask me what it would need now is more to say, why is a Swiss-made watch still relevant today against a connected watch, against probably very well good-made watches, uh, good products from Asia, what is still the difference? And there is a difference. And there is a story, there is a tradition, there are quality aspects. Uh, and that probably this got a bit lost on the way, if you ask me. I, you know what? This is a great place to end. So you've just given some wonderful notes to anyone in the marketing side of the industry. If you want to if you want to help be part of the solution and help come up with a really good marketing campaign that will communicate the value of Swiss watchmaking, just, you know, rewind a little bit and listen to what Sebastian said. So, again, this has been uh, Sebastian uh, Shelmonte. He is the head of innovation at Salida. He's done so much more. We'll have to have you back on. We didn't even get to talk about Angelus. No, oh my God, or your no. book or chronographs. All right, so yeah. there's more to go. Um, there's more to go. Obviously. Yeah, so Sebastian, thank you so much. And thanks for everyone for listening to this episode of the Superlative Podcast. Thanks, Aria. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com. <laughs>